you're watching a special edition of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Our guest this episode is Frank Walleye Weiser, a retired U.S. Navy commander and former member of the Blue Angels, and most recently, a stunt pilot in the box office sensation movie Top Gun Maverick. Walleye's going to detail his time in the Navy, including his tenure with the Blue Angels and their most recent transition to the F-18 Super Hornet. Later on in the podcast, Walleye's going to tell us how he ended up on the set of Top Gun Maverick and give insight into those iconic scenes we've seen in the movie trailer. But first, we open up the discussion with Commander Weiser's recent attendance at the movie premiere. So sit back, relax, and please welcome Frank Walleye Weiser to the podcast. All right, welcome to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and super excited to be uh, joined today by retired U.S. Navy commander, uh, former Blue Angel, and now someone who's enjoying the fruits of their labor, watching the release of Top Gun Maverick coming out in movie theaters May 27th, 2022. Uh, commander Weiser, Frank Walleye Weiser, thank you so much for joining me here in the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah. Um, so you were just down in the premiere of Top Gun last week. Uh, were you in San Diego? I was. Yep. We went down to my wife and I uh, had the opportunity to go to San Diego and watch it in the Lowry Theater at Naval Air Station, North Island, with um, a huge Navy contingent to include the whole Top Gun staff. And then also privileged to go that evening into downtown Pacific Theater to watch it with the Paramount Group. Oh, nice. Um, did you uh, did you see the events that took place on the midway there with Tom Cruise flying into well, the midway? Navy folks. I think that was more a press thing. I, at first, I misunderstood that they were going to show the movie out there, but I do believe uh, Tom and Jerry had the actors all show up there just to kind of do a big press hit. Oh, gotcha. And did they join you for the actual premiere uh, in the they, movie theater? Uh, yeah, a number of them were there at the Naval Station. Um, Tom was there. Jerry Bruckheimer was there. The director, Joe, was there. And then uh, the Secretary of the Navy was there, notably. Um, and they all came into the theater on the base to kind of introduce it. And then that evening... Um, in the theater downtown, there were some introductions and, and kind of um, you know, thanks given to certain parties. And uh, Tom was on stage for that, as was um, the director and the producer again, and then the writer of the movie. So, and then all the actors were there as well. That was, I think that that event was the big proper premiere. Yeah. One thing I saw on social media was that um, Tom Cruise was aboard the Carl Vincent and they actually had a former Blue Angel Hornet on there. Did, do you know any background on that? That was really cool to see. You know, I, I didn't know about the uh, Blue Angel Hornet on there. The, the CEO of that carrier is a close friend of mine. And so I do know I'd spoken with him and his wife earlier that day. And so I think Tom and he and their CMC were going to ride up the elevator and introduce it to the crew. So I think Paramount really went out of their way to try and make this a Navy thing, not just a Hollywood thing. And so by virtue of just being in San Diego and showing it first in the theater on the base and then doing the hit at the, both on the Midway and on the Vincent, uh, I, yeah, it was very, very cool. A lot of sailors saw it before anybody else. Awesome. Well, uh, I want to ask you a lot more about Top Gun. Before we do that, I wanted to talk more about your background, both in the Navy and in the Blue Angels specifically. So uh, I know you are an Atlanta guy, but you graduated the Naval Academy class of 2000. Um, did you see Top Gun growing up and was inspired to, you know, go to the Naval Academy or, you know, was your journey to the Navy kind of more circumstantial or? I did see it. I did love it. Um, I, I also did not go to the Academy just to fly airplanes. I think if they would allow us to, if you could select fighters or carriers or something from flight school, it'd be a different ballgame. There's such a, um, I had not flown before. So my, in my opinion, my chance of flying anything really cool was very slim. Uh, so I had gone there to be a Navy SEAL. The Naval Academy chooses for you of what you get to do. Um, but it's been just a real dream and a blessing for us the whole time. And I, I definitely think my skill sets are probably more in favor of flying than um, being a SEAL, but uh, that is how I ended up doing what I'm doing. 
Awesome. And, uh, you know, the Blue Angels traditionally fly over the Naval Academy graduation. I assume they flew over years. Did you look up and, and think, hey, man, one day I'm going to be one of those jets or did that not even go through your mind? You know, as you go back through times in your life where you clearly remember things, me sitting there as having, if I'd ever seen him before, I hadn't remembered him. So sitting there as a plebe at the Naval Academy at the end of my first year, um, just by the, the dorms watching the show and the sneak pass came in from behind and I almost fell off like a 30 foot wall. And I, I distinctly remember the time saying that's probably the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it really bodes well that I was eventually able to do that and not stuck in the diamond. Um, I want to talk about uh, your kind of first year, actually, uh, after your graduation. And and I kind of want to put it in context to to the same time period in my life, which were probably very different because there was probably three hours that changed all of American history or really the world. Right. And now I'm talking about September 11th and you're a year into your military career. And I look back at where I was on September 11th. I was in my second year of college. And quite frankly, not much really changed in my life going forward. Um, Unfortunately, we had someone at my school. Her name was Nicole Miller. She was on Flight 93, who we learned passed away. But, you know, my life went on. I went on to go to college, get an internship. Nothing changed uh, other than people putting American flags on their trucks and blasting Martina McBride in the parking lot at school. But, uh, you know, I was able to have that experience because of people like you and your peers in the armed forces. And so I'm assuming that your life changed dramatically when you were watching those events. Um, and so would, you know, one, you know, thank you to you and your peers for allowing people like us to be at home and, and live our lives, uh, while you volunteer to defend freedom. But what was your nine 11 experience like, you know, just a year into your Naval career? Sure. Yeah. I was in Meridian, Mississippi going through flight school I was a T2 student at the time, so intermediate training, and I was in the sim when it happened. And I distinctly remember the instructor said, something's going on here, but we're going to we're gonna finish this sim. And so we did, and then you know, we come out and debrief, and then we're watching on TV. <laughs> and then the um, same guy said, well, let's go do sim number two. So we finished our sims for that day. And then after that, it changed pretty dramatically, I feel like, you know, both for everybody that we didn't fly for a short period, took hours to get on the base, that sort of thing. But the other interesting aspect of it was, as you're going through flight school and you have, um, you know, the mentorship of all the instructors that are there and they're explaining to you what fleet life is like and why you choose one platform or the other and one coast over the other. A lot of all of their information was pre 9-11 because they had crews. And so you'd hear the stories of the med cruises. Well, you know, go East Coast and you'll have a six month cruise on an aircraft carrier and you'll hit all the med ports and maybe the families travel with and, you know, meet up in ports and all that. And of course, that hasn't happened since 2000. Um, but that was certainly the, the prevailing experience at the time. Uh, and, you know, all of my deployments have been, you know, essentially get on the aircraft here, go direct to the Middle East, stay there as long as the carrier can withstand it and then come straight home with maybe a port on the way if you're lucky. So um, it has been a very changed Navy ever since, well, certainly naval aviation ever since 9-11. Yeah. And um, were you apprehensive when it happened that man, my Navy life's going to be a lot different, or were you glad that you were in the service that you had an opportunity to? No, I wasn't at all. I think, you know, if, if there was any primary emotion to be feeling like I was going to miss it, you know, that um, my friends who maybe went to flight school six months earlier or finished faster for various pipeline reasons uh, might get out and get to serve and then um, I'd be on the tail end of it or something. So clearly that hasn't happened. Yeah. Uh, so, but you didn't, uh, go to the, after you got winged, I think what the year 2003, you didn't immediately hop in and go to the fleet. You were uh, a flight instructor. I was, yeah, they have a, a small program where they'll keep one or two people a year and you'll be a, 
they call a um, selectively retained graduate, something to that effect. And um, so I was a flight instructor for about a year and a half after I finished. And that was another concern of mine at the time was that, I'd, you know, the action would be over and I would have missed it all. But um, my year and a half flying T-45s and Marine was about, from a flying perspective, the most fun I've ever had. And I was flying with my friends and I really was comfortable and loved the airplane and I learned a lot. And uh, it was just a remarkable year for a, a brand new pilot. And then you transitioned to the Hornet. Was it the Legacy Hornet or the Super Hornet? Yeah, I went Legacy Hornet you know, up to Virginia Beach. And, uh, you know, what squadron? And I assume then you did get deployed, uh, obviously. Yeah, I joined a squadron uh, following the RAG, uh, VFA 87. And the, the skipper then was also a former Blue Angel, Dave Silky, Wolfie Silky. And so he was my first fleet skipper and um, obviously a, a great mentor for the Blue Angels and explained a lot about how the team worked and um, you know, the, the whole background of the organization. And so I served in, in the war party for two years and then went to the Blues in the summer of 07 from there. Yeah. Nice. Um, and real quick, you know, there's that famous quote from Neil Armstrong about, you know, landing on the moon was easier than landing on a carrier at night. How was your personal experience learning how to land on a carrier at night? Well, yeah, it, I've heard most people say it's about the most fun thing you can do in the whole world during the daytime and the nighttime. I, my experience was that um, it, it wasn't scary at all until I had my first unsafe landing. And then from that point on, I was very apprehensive and, and very, you know, well-prepared is not the term, but um, focused for sure uh, for every night carrier landing. And it's one of those things, and I think it's true about most guys, is you, when you wake up and you know you have a night launch or two night flights, you're, you think about it all day long. Uh, it's something that you have to mentally prepare for because it's not easy. And, and you're well aware of your own limitations and the, um, how to mitigate all the other dangers around the aircraft carrier. So it's, uh, it can be a challenging thing. And that the, the, my JO deployment, um, I had one, if not two months, where all of my landings were at night because we were night carrier. We did a lot of night ops. And um, I, I do distinctly remember having a day flight after maybe two months of only night flights. And I was literally scared to land on the aircraft carrier during the day because I had no clue how to do that. Because it's a bit of a different thing. And, and once you do it a lot, it's, the, it's easy. But um, when we only flew at night, they make it pretty easy. You just come straight in. You just have to be on your A game at the, towards the very end. Wow. And uh, you referenced Dave Silkey. Um, was he the one that uh, kind of officially encouraged you to submit an application to the Blue Angels? Or yeah, get- then his XO, um, a gentleman who wasn't on the Blues, Frank Morley. My career timing was weird because of the surgery time. And I, of course, I didn't appreciate that when I was a brand new aviator, that how that affects you. That it really takes out the opportunity to go to Top Gun or to go to test pilot school or any of the other sort of one-off things because um, of some timing issues prior to Department heads, and I didn't know that at the time, but Blue Angels was kind of a unique little way to get me back on track, and um, and of course an incredible opportunity to serve too. So um, they they both explained that to me. How did you learn you made the Blue Angels? Usually, that's a, a fun story. Did they kind of do the traditional prank where they kind of told you you didn't make the team, and then? Yeah, I did not expect to make the team. I had been given some tipper that I wasn't going to make the team. And so I had gone home and I was just sitting there in, in my office and my wife was there, but I didn't want to call. It was a Friday. I didn't want to call from the squadron and be laughed at by all my buddies. So I, I had gone home and, and was frankly shocked um, that we'd made it. And then, then you jump right into preparations to move in another month. And your first year, you were the narrator, right? Uh, were you excited to be the narrator or were you a little eager to get in the jet and start flying demos? No, I was, I was really excited to be the narrator, I, mostly because it's a path towards five and six, and that looked exceptionally or incredibly fun to me. Um, but I, the narrator job also was um, unique from both the being in front of the crowd and from the opportunity to, to do all the VIP flights and the media flights. And that was a, one of those things where it's your only chance to ever do something like that. 
Um, so I was very excited to do that. And I loved it. And I flew with Dan McShane. He was number eight. And we just had an incredibly fun year together flying around. And my crew chiefs and I had a blast. And I'm still keeping in touch with him years later. So I loved being number seven. I thought it was a hoot. Um, and, you know, the opportunity to fly later was fine as well um, and exciting. Uh, I do remember being really, really proud. I joined with Gopher and Dino, uh, Dino Brentuis and Gopher Swinger, and watching them fly their first air show, I was like, a, uh, I don't know, I just remember being emotional because we joined together and then I'm watching them fly this show and it was really, it was overwhelming to me that they had learned it as fast as they had and they were as good as they were. Um, so I, it was a lot of emotions during that Blue Angel experience. And so then you joined the demo the following year, I think 2010 is the opposing solo. Um, did your year as narrator help you prepare for that? Or were you still drinking from a fire hose in winter training? Yeah, it does, definitely helps you prepare a lot of, I think that's done deliberately. The seven profile that you take the media writers and the influencers on, uh, that's built in a large part around the solo profile. So you do a lot of the same maneuvers then. So it is, you're a lot more comfortable in the airplane I'm more comfortable with the calm and the, the maneuvers. So I, I think it helps a lot, actually. It's going to be hard no matter what. You don't do any, you know, you do very limited formation flying as number seven, just on transits. So that's primarily the um, skill set you have to learn to be able to do it well. But yeah, it's it's hard no matter what you do. Winter training is such a, a brutal time for everyone that um, you could prepare as much as you thought you, you could as number seven, but you're still going to be drinking from a virus. Gotcha. And then just the G profiles, are they increased when you join the Blue Angel from a standard fleet pilot? Do you need to do any, I mean, like the Blues are known for their physical regiment to upkeep their, their fitness, but is there that much increased G when you join the Blue Angels that you really need to maintain that? There is. Yeah. It's twofold. Obviously the G profile is much greater. And then the lack of a G suit just means that you have very limited um, margin for error. And so I would equate it, you know, my last three years was working on the transition. And a lot of what I did was trying to mitigate the flea, which is essentially the damage to the airplane that the pilot puts on it through high G's. And it's actually the high G's are one thing. The high negative G's are really bad for the aircraft in the long run. And so the engineers who built the F-18 were able to show me a graph and it um, depicted what the original F-18 engineers had said this airplane was expected to fly. And that would be, it was supposed to have one or one seven G pull, you know, every one flight hour or two a flight hour, something like that. Um, and it was supposed to have one negative three G push once every 10,000 hours or something like that. And what the blue angels were doing was, <laughs> I mean, from a positive G perspective, it was off the charts from a negative G perspective. It was unthinkable. And so it would take an airplane that should last 6,000 hours or 8,000 hours. And if we, if we flew it, especially in the solo profile, it would last three or 400 hours and then it was cooked. Um, and so I was trying really hard to find ways to rethink our demo from a Jeep profile without anyone being able to notice that it was reduced. Meaning even your most astute Angel fan wouldn't be able to tell that you changed anything, but we would get a lot of benefit back in terms of the flight hours remaining on those jets. And so that was, that's telling. And of course, as I would explain to the engineers, the, the damage we put on the airplanes is also damage we put on the bodies. The human body feels that positive energy just like the airplane does. And it damages us too, I'm sure. I just don't think there are enough studies to show what it, whether we're shorter or, you know, more uh, mentally disabled or whatever it has, however it has affected us, um, I think is, is a very much a thing. 
Wow. And then, uh, so your next year, you then become the lead solo. Can you talk to me about the difference between lead solo and opposing solo as far as, um, you know, responsibilities and, and just difference in flying? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the profile remains fairly similar. You have a few different maneuvers that you do. You join the line of rest loop, which is always a challenging maneuver for everyone. Um, and especially someone who hadn't flown with you before, but primarily the challenge is being responsible for your wing. And it's, um, it is a responsibility. And, you, and I think every, but every element leads, certainly the boss feels this way. And, and certainly I felt this way as five, that you believe this person's, um, life is in your hands to some degree, meaning that you've trained them properly and that during the air show, you are um, responsible for yourself and for them because they're new and they're learning and there's so little room for error. So uh, it's, it's a challenge and it's exciting. And um, to watch someone that you've trained, learn the profile that and learn it well enough that they can pass it on and you can continue every year to just be a little bit better as an organization is really the challenge. Which one did you like better? I loved them both. I mean, the, the thing about, I've always, I've said this for almost my entire Navy career since the blues is that the number six job seems to be about the most fun job in the whole Navy from a flying perspective. You have very limited ground jobs because your whole focus is supposed to be to learn to fly the demo and to do it safely. Um, and it's essentially the same profile, but number five, you are so busy running the squadron as the operations officer that um, the flying becomes, should be second nature by that point. And so you just have a very different year. So number six is just a really, really incredible year. And when I went back, and was doing it as a, as a commander. Uh, it wasn't lost on me. What a good deal I had for that short time. So you eventually left the team. And then as you've already referenced, you came back to the team. What did you do in between um, your, your stints on the blues? Sure. I, uh, when I left there, I went through safety school because I was already in Pensacola and that school was there. And then I joined BFA 97, the Warhawks as a department head and went through all the normal department progressions, safety, admin, maintenance, and ops. And we were there for two and a half years in Lemoore. Um, and my timing was such that I was deployed basically the whole time. I think we were at sea for 22 months out of 30 months and then on debt another three months. So that was a really challenging time for our family because we were just gone so much. And that was just um, the, the times. And, and um, you know, we were the, the carrier at that point. So we had come back from a planned deployment of seven months. And then we surged immediately thereafter for eight months, eight plus, and it was, I learned a lot, you know, of course I love my squadron. I love the people I served with. Um, and we, we did a lot of good stuff at sea. We were the first aircraft carrier to put rockets on our planes since Vietnam war and the tragedy uh, and the fire that uh, followed. So, um, I felt like we you know, did great things to support our country, but, um, as a family, it was quite challenging. Uh, and then following that, and, and in large part, because of that, um, I chose to do a joint job over in Germany. So I went to the NATO school in South Germany. It was good for our family. I finally, I met my kids again, or for the first time in some cases, and we got to, we got to spend a lot of really cool time together as a family. We weren't, I wasn't flying in any capacity. I was just teaching NATO to the NATO nations and our partner nations. Um, and I intended to um, be done after that and move back to uh, North Georgia and kind of transition to a civilian role. Uh, then obviously um, Cooch passed away in June of 2016 and through a, a odd Turn of events, um, the CO who had been the training officer for me when I was a junior officer um, called me and said they were had some fairly limited options and would it be possible for me to rejoin the team in 2016. And so you did rejoin the team. And obviously, as you've already referenced, you're now a commander flying the opposing solo number six. Um, 
is that hard transitioning on as a commander into the number six position? Um, what was your dynamic like with the a lead solo who technically, I guess, is, you know, junior to you? Um, how is that dynamic between the two of you? Uh, actually, I think what I was most concerned about was would I be able to fly the air show at all? Because um, I hadn't flown anything for almost three years at that point. And so I was a bit apprehensive that I'd even remember how to fly. And I went up to for the RAG for a week in Oceana, and I had a, a junior officer of mine from my department tour who was then the NATOPS um, officer for the whole Navy. And I said, come do my sims and really put me through the, um, uh, the pain train. And I got I sat in the sim, I couldn't turn the airplane on. I, I hadn't used a checklist in the Hornet for years and years, and I just said, oh, shoot, uh, what do I do first? You know, I, and I almost had to treat it like playing the piano or something where you haven't done it, you close your eyes and your hands know what to do, but your brain is tricking you, your eyes are tricking you. So um, after a second, it comes back to you really fast. But um, after, you know, a couple hours in the F-18 and then hopping back down to Pensacola, um, the lead soul at the time was a guy named Drupy Chamberlain. And so, and he had been on my deployments when I was a department head and he was a J.O., and I, I think I even sent a letter of recommendation in for him at some point. So I knew him well, and um, I didn't know the rest of the junior officers. I only knew the boss. And so getting back into the airplane was, um, I, I thought it'd be incredibly challenging. And it turns out it came back really fast. And I was really, thank God that it, it did because um, we had a couple of weeks to get me up to speed. And then we were off and running to the, you know, the fall air show season. Um, and it, it's a testament to the training we do on the Blue Angels that it becomes, you do it, you fly so much and you fly so regularly and so consistently and so um, accurately to the profile and the stand that uh, to get back in it was, the only thing that challenged me was actually the changes that had happened from into 2010 to the start of 2016. And there were some minor changes and those were hard to take on board because I was so used to doing it my way. But in general, everything came back pretty fast and working with Drupy wasn't hard at all. It was, um, you know, I, I had flown more and I'd been on the Blue Angels perhaps, um, you know, during a different time, but uh, we were still solo pilots and he was the lead. So that's how that goes. And you stayed on for 2017. Is there a maneuver that you thought was either the most challenging or most difficult um, during your, your tenure, you know, either stint or is there one that you just enjoyed more than others? I'm, I'm obviously smiling because we, we have a lot of element rivalry. And so I've already gotten my one diamond dig in for the day. Um, I would say I, I like, I loved all our maneuvers. I, I think it's easy to say that uh, the Delta was essentially my favorite time. I would joke that that was my rest time with them, that I could finally not have to leave and I could just follow somebody else and let them do all the work. But what I loved about it was that it was teamwork. And so, you know, you have a maneuver like the loop break cross where it's all six. You, you, you've broken up, you've rejoined with very limited time, you've gotten together again. And now you split and you come back and, and boy, when you have a perfect six plane cross at center point, you know, that's the cast meow, I think that you've, um, you've all done this together. It's really, really hard. I don't think anyone can appreciate exactly how hard it is. And so I think that best showcases the aircraft's capabilities, the pilot's capabilities, the team's capabilities, the whole shebang. So um, all there were, there weren't many maneuvers I didn't like, but um from a perspective of being a blue angel and really appreciating the team, I'd say that the Delta stuff and, and specifically the uh, loop break was the best. Awesome. And then, so you left the team, but, but kind of not really. Cause then as you've already referenced, you assisted the team in transition and you talked about some of the work you did there, uh, talking about the G loading on the plane. How did you get engaged in the transition effort? And I'm assuming you had super Hornet time at some point. Um, yeah, well, I had no you didn't. Before. No, but been only legacy. Um, Three or four thousand hours of legacy time with no rhino time, but the airplane is remarkably similar. Uh, 
it, it's heavier to fly. It has some unique differences, but for the most part, it's pretty darn similar. And you, and for that reason, it only takes five hours. You can go take a couple courses, you, you take a couple online lectures, and then you're flying the thing, and it's it's pretty much the same. Switchology is a little bit different for some of the stuff. But it's similar. And then what actually was very interesting to me is the stuff that is different about it that doesn't really affect fleet aviators definitely can affect the Blue Angels Air Show. So the engineers get better and better. And what they really do, whether they tell it to you or not, is they get better at protecting the airplane from the pilot. One of the engineers I worked a lot with while during those three years said to me something to the effect of never underestimate a pilot's ability to do something stupid that you couldn't anticipate. And so they put a lot of, you know, the F-18 is a fly-by-wire flight control system. So they, they, with just coding and with software, they're able to allow you or not allow you to do certain things um, to protect the airplane. And uh, some of those things are definitely good for the longevity of the Super Hornet. Some of them are very bad. I mean, they didn't anticipate this airplane being flown for prolonged periods upside down, for example. And so they have... Um, put in some reductions so that, for example, if you're inverted and you have a negative angle of attack, which means you're essentially your um, relative fly slope to the wind or your relative position to the, the wind, it, um, it doesn't allow you to roll at the same degree and the same rate that you would when you're upright. And how that can really negatively affect you is, you know, if you're the diamond and you're in the double farvel and you get slow, then when you want to roll back out, you don't roll out the same rate and everything becomes so seat of the pants. You're used to a certain feel that when it doesn't roll right, it can be very uncomfortable. In the solo profile, we would have the number five on takeoff does the dirty roll. And because you're slow, uh, you have a lot more negative AOA. And so there was an example that I referenced a great deal of a super hard junior officer doing this at an air shelf in Canada, where he basically is, um, executing the dirty roll, but even with more margin for safety because they are in blower the whole time and they bring their gear up, whereas we stay dirty and, and do it at, at military power to reduce thrust. And so he goes full left stick and the aircraft starts to roll and then just ceases the roll as it's about inverted. And, it, and he has full left stick command, but the aircraft won't roll because the airplane is limiting itself. And he just had too much forward stick put in, but at the time didn't know that. What was so counterintuitive was if he had been upside down, inverted, or inverted and dirty and unable to roll, if he had just pulled back on the stick, which is the, the last thing you'd ever do, because that would put you right to the ground, it would have broken the negative alpha and he would have rolled upright. That would have been the fastest way to get upright. But no one would ever do that. And no one really knows that that software has that limiting capability because it never comes up in fleet use. So we ran into things like that. We ran into, um, there's a G bucket, which protects the aircraft from high G pulls at high speeds. So it limits you to five and a half Gs when you're above 0.88 Mach. And so that definitely comes up for the solos, especially number six, when it does the sneak pass behind the crowd where you're typically 0.96. And the danger in my mind was you'd be at 0.96 and you pull as hard as you can. The airplane gives you five and a half Gs. And as it decelerates in the climb, it, at, you know, at the split second, it'll go from 0.89 to 0.88. And then you're going to get 7.6 Gs. And that extra two Gs could easily put someone to sleep if they had a G strain on for just five and a half. So... I felt like it was my job to try to identify what those differences were and then try to find a way to mitigate them and try to find a way to accurately cover that in our SOP so that the new teams over the course of the following years would be able to keep themselves safe. And uh, have you seen the team in uh, 2022 at all fly those? I have. Yep. I sure have. Yeah. They, they're looking pretty good. They are. Yeah. I think it's the challenge for them this year was that it was the first year they've had not a experienced team, meaning that in 2020 it was still in legacies and they had COVID. So um, they didn't fly a whole lot of air shows. They got to practice a lot and they did all the flyovers. 
but they got really competent together as a team. And then the next year they had rhinos, but it was the exact same pilot. So they were very, very good at flying the air show. They were well rehearsed. It was a new airplane. It was a really, you know, just by um, the luck of the times, it was, uh, it worked out really well that it happened that way. You could never have predicted that years in advance when we were going through the Super Hornet process of transitioning. But now that they have brand, three new pilots in the demo, it's, it's a challenge for them this year. They have to relearn um, what a normal team goes through through the um, El Centro process. Yeah. Well, hey, let's talk Top Gun. So how did you actually get engaged in the production of the film? As it was explained to me, because um, I'm not 100% sure on all the details, but as it was explained to me, the Navy was meeting with Paramount to go over the movie and they hadn't yet started filming. It was summer of 18. And one of the scenes they were looking for, they were for, referred to as Lawrence of Arabia, which was um, maybe the opening of the movie Lawrence of Arabia, where you see just a dust cloud and difference in the distance. And you know, eventually this personal horseback comes up and they were looking for a scene where all you can see is just a plume of dust. And then, you know, seconds later, this airplane comes ripping overhead. And they insisted on that airplane being an incredibly low altitude. And that was Jerry Bruckheimer and Tom Cruise. And then they're having these meetings with who, the gentleman who was then the air boss, the three-star for naval aviation, and said, we can get a lot of stuff done. We can film you know, low-altitude stuff. We can film carrier stuff and dogfighting and BFM, but um, I'm not putting an airplane at 10 or 20 feet. And so, um, as I understood it, they kind of got to a point where they said, well, then we can't film this. This is actually, it's critical to the storyline that this happens. And so... And we need to either find a way to do it or we don't do it at all. And so someone in the back of the room after us in a few weeks had a bright idea to call the Blue Angels and see if they had anyone who could do this. Because we do, number five does this routinely. We'll fly this new pass at 50 feet. And so um, it was brought up. And of course, the team is in the middle of the airship season. And you can't, you can't pull any one of the pilots away for a week, much less what the game six or eight separate weeks. And so uh, I was working with the transition and the call came to us and, and said, you know, would you be willing to do this? And of course the answer is yes. And more flying is better. We weren't flying very much anyway back then. So um, the, the irony was that even as the Blue Angel Super Hornet transition officer, I hadn't yet gotten a Super Hornet fall, but the minute the Top Gun movie you know, kicked into gear, I went straight up to Oceana and got my Super Hornet fall. And then we used a mixture of Super Hornets with Top Gun. And then some sometimes we use our plane. There's a scene in the movie where they have this Skunk Works airplane fly over uh, You've seen it perhaps even in the preview, takes off and does a low transition and then pitches up. And so we use one of the Blue Angel F-18s to do that. I, I did all the, that filming out of China Lake and our Mo at the time, uh, Garrett Hopkins was with me as a safety observer. We treated all these things just like we would a Blue Angel air show. And that's how we mitigated it. We put one of our comm cart guys on the headset. We had constant comms back and forth. We had, we went through all the different knock it off scenarios. And so we did, we treated that particular part of the show just like the um, number six takeoff. We filmed a whole bunch of just low transitions. And so that's in there. Um, there's a Blue Angel flyby uh, at a funeral. Uh, I won't give the information on that as a spoiler alert or whatever, but um, I filmed that as well over uh, North Island. And, and that was just a whole bunch of different shots, you know, pitching up and smoke on, smoke off, that sort of thing. And then the Lawrence of Arabia was filmed at Fallon. The broad, um, I think it was Bravo 20 we did it. So just a high altitude desert. And, um, just an airplane down low, nothing tricky to it. The trick is to do it repeatedly at the exact same altitude safely, um, you know, where you can't see where you're, I couldn't see the cameras from 12 miles away on downwind as you turn in and you have to get low and set before you can even see them. So you're trusting the airplane to some degree, but they were old airplanes and the designations kept shifting. So 
And there's not a lot of ground jobs out there. So that's the part that became tricky. It wasn't just being consistent, holding an exact altitude. It was making sure you show up to the right spot. Um, as far as production, I mean, were these all like, were these weeks apart or were these like, you know, you know, day to day, how would had the production you know, work? out for me from October of 18 through June of 19. And it was, um, a week here, a week there. And I think it was at the end, six or eight separate weeks of going to all these different places. That I, I've heard that some of the kind of maverick helmet shots from behind, is that you, did they do in any in cockpit filming well, of you? The only two people that flew with Tom were, um, a junior officer who was a top gun instructor and he was the BFM SME. He was, um, he ran the BFM shop. So all the dogfighting scenes where you see Tom, I believe is him flying. And then anything that's low altitude with Tom flying should be me. And so that Lawrence Varadia scene through some of the canyons, um, that sort of thing would be me. And, and what they do is, um, they'll take his hairline and glue it to the back of your head so that from uh, the cameras that'll look forward, if you see the Maverick helmet from behind, it's, uh, it's a, you know, qualified F-18 pilot flying, um, but it's meant to look like him. And then everything else where you see the pilots flying, him included, it's all there on the backseat of the F-18 uh, with just really good cameras that make it look like they're flying. You probably never thought you'd be doubling for Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's funny, sure. actually, that did come up. Um, and, and they use that term because that's the Hollywood term. And so you'd go into the hair and makeup booth to get ready, whether they're gluing the hair on or, or um, you know, they're putting makeup on your neck or they would darken my neck because he, he had a better tan than my pasty white skin. And so they'd spray paint your neck and then they would eventually put fake um, sweat, the dab fake sweat on me. And I said, you know, it's June and Fallon. It's 110 degrees. I, you don't have to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to produce real sweat here in just seconds. Um, but one of the people in the hair and makeup booth said, who are you doubling us today? And it just caught me off guard. And I said, uh, I'm not doubling as anybody. You know, you understand that they're doubling as us, right? They're faking us and um and everyone you're seeing here all these top gun staff instructors everyone flying they're real pilots and they're they're actually they do this every day and the actors are sitting in the back pretending to be the pilots so um, that term is used pretty regularly uh i just found it funny you know the the actors um are treated like navy admirals all the time you know when they come in the room everybody gets quiet and um and everyone tends to their needs and so i could be out pre-flight in the jet and you get pushed out of the way because one of the actors is walking by and all the cameras want to get their eyes on him. So I, I found that to be pretty amusing, but um, I guess a necessary evil. Yeah, I have watched the makings of the first film several times. And, you know, I guess there were a couple occasions where uh, maybe there was some conflict between the production and the Navy as far as how to film a sequence. Did you ever find yourself pushing back on the production, whether it be for safety or realism or? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll answer that in two parts. One, I know the Navy in general, the liaison for the movie Ferd and then the Air Boss at the time were very engaged in making sure it was done safely. I mean, there was, you can't say there's a zero risk mindset, but they had um, a zero risk mindset in terms of doing anything that wasn't necessary to make the movie good and risking. It would be just tra um, a tragedy to have to lose an airplane or a pilot to make a movie. Um, and they did lose uh, you know, a civilian pilot during the first one. So I believe Art Shaw, right? They're very engaged to not let that happen again. Yeah. Um, but what Ferg did an exceptional job of was most everyone who flew in that movie was a junior officer in the Navy. And he, he had a lot of people flying different scenes so that they all have this connection to the movie. And so I think that's really, really cool. I mean, the movie is going to inspire young men and women to join and fly, no doubt about it. But I hope it also keeps a lot of pilots in, especially the ones who were involved in the movie, because they had this really cool connection to a, an awesome feature film. Um, from my perspective, 
what they were asking me to do, you know, they were, everyone was very nervous about this low altitude scene over the desert, but aside from trying to locate them this time, it was pretty straightforward. Um, the funeral shot was actually one of the hardest ones because it was at sunset and over Loma. So it was really hard to get low without hitting that mountain because you can't see it as you approach it. So, um, that, and then there's a lot of calm back and forth with the controllers in San Diego and the different airspace restrictions. So that was more challenging than even the low altitude stuff. Um, I found there was one scene that you'll see where it's at the end of that low altitude scene where the airplane comes over the desert and then pulls up and you see it in the previews and in the movie where it approaches, uh, it looks like it comes head on. And so the people flying the helicopter said, all right, once you're done, um, the minute you fly over the cameras, just pop your nose up at us and you know pull right to us. And then right before you hit us, push so you don't hit us. And that was the brief. And I said, well, I'm not doing that. Uh, that's insane. First of all, um, if I'm doing this low altitude scene, I need to be solely focused on that. And I don't want to have to find you guys on the ingress at a low altitude to, to locate where the helicopter is. I said, let's get that scene the way we want it, just low altitude. And then we'll film it again where we're, I'm not, I'm, I'm higher. I'm, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet, something where I can actually have my scan look for the helicopter and still be down low. And, um, and I'm not going to just pull up and in the last second push to not hit you. I, they didn't understand the capability of the aircraft, that it pulls better than it pushes. And at a high speed, the turn radius is really, really wide. And so we did it a few times and they um, you know, said, no, no, keep your nose on us longer, longer, longer. And then, you know, I, I knew I was going to just wipe out everybody doing what they were doing. So I said, I'm, I'm good. Let's go back and let's land at Fallon and let's talk about this because uh, what we're trying to do is not going to work. And I remember them being quite frustrated. And the guy who was um, sort of the, the head of that filming group said, you're the first person that's ever told me no. And he was polite, but sort of forceful about it. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm doing this for all of our benefit. I don't, I, I think what you're asking the airplane can't do. And at one point I pushed so hard that all of the stuff in the airplane, there was so much negative G that you know, my helmet bag went to the back seat. The stuff in the back seat came forward. It was a, it was a hot mess in that airplane for a second. And I was just trying to do what they, what they were asking me to do. And it just wasn't possible. So what we ended up doing was moving the helicopter higher, which meant they had to take out a person or two from the uh, helo to get better performance. And I went slower, which gave me a better turning radius. And, um, and that changed everything. And then I felt like I had a lot of control of the aircraft to the point where I was putting my jet exhaust across them to the point where they were then getting uncomfortable. So we were able to, um, I guess, I don't say meet in the middle, but get to the point where we got the shot they were looking for uh, just by changing the um, parameters for what we were doing. Awesome. So we'll wrap it up uh, here real soon. Uh, question for you. Did you ever have a chance to interact with Tom Cruise at all uh, during your time yep. on set? Yeah, we a lot. Um, we, um, he was intent on flying with the same person who had filmed that low altitude scene. So we hopped in together and flew um, basically that scene again. So we'd have video of him in the back seat. And then we ended up, uh, we had a good time flying together. And so we, and I fly a Baron. I own a Baron here where we live. And so he had started off flying a Baron in Europe when he was a young um, actor and doing a lot of stuff in Europe. So we had a lot of fun chats about the different airplanes we had flown. And so we flew together for basically all day, every day that week and did a lot of the scenes through the canyons. That is a pretty fun part of the movie. And then filmed the final scenes for the movie out over the water, um, west of LA. And yeah, we flew together a lot. And I have to tell you, he, well, he was great to fly with. You know, I noticed this as Blue Angel 7 during the, my VIP um, flying time is that I could fly with someone who is a big name actor, athlete, you name it. And then the next day I'd fly with a 65 year old female guidance counselor. And I would, in a lot of cases, have more fun with the 65 year old guidance counselor because she really enjoyed flying and did well with the G or the, um, the maneuvers. Whereas 
maybe a famous actor athlete just didn't do well and it wasn't very much fun. And so we would go home early or um, they weren't feeling well or they didn't enjoy it. And so it becomes, you like flying with people who like flying, not people that are famous. Um, and Tom was both of those. He's famous, but uh, he really was strong in the jet and did well. And we went through, I mean, we were at low altitude doing AG turns over and over again. And he wanted it to be more and more aggressive. Everything we did, he just wanted it faster, lower, um, higher G the whole time. So he was, he's a stud in the airplane, did really well. We had a day where we briefed at 6 a.m. and basically flew all day together until about 9 p.m. And we were coming back that night. And I said, um, you know, what are you doing next? He goes, well, I'm flying down to LA with the producer and director, and then I'm flying to see my family in Florida. I said, are you just going to rack out and sleep the whole time? He said, no, man, you've done all the flying today. I get to fly tonight. And I mean, he was a uh, blue collar um, pilot. It's not the right term, but he loves to fly and he's not, he's not ashamed of working hard. He, he's an incredibly um, hardworking individual. And, and it was telling to me that he was willing to fly all night just because he had to sit there and let me fly all day. That's great. Well, I, I think that's a good note to wrap it up on. Uh, while I thank you so much for taking time and sharing some insight into your career, as well as the making a Top Gun, I think people are really going to enjoy this discussion. And, and thanks again. I hope so, too. Thank you, Ron, for having me.